Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today author Nicole Chung has returned to discuss our May book club pick, This Boy We Made, a memoir of motherhood, genetics, and facing the unknown by Taylor Harris. This memoir was released in 2022, and it follows the emotional journey of a Black mother whose beliefs around science, faith, and our healthcare system and motherhood itself are challenged when her young son goes through a mysterious illness. Today, Nicole and I talk about what makes a memoir compelling, expectations versus reality, and so much more. There are spoilers in this episode. Make sure you listen through to the end of today's episode to hear what our June book club pick will be. And a quick reminder, everything we talk about on each episode of The Stacks can be found in the link in the show notes. If you just can't get enough of The Stacks, I have a whole bunch more for you if you join The Stacks Pack, which is our community on Patreon. For just $5 a month, you get bonus episodes, our virtual book club, and access to our extremely active Discord, where we do buddy reads, give book recommendations, and share our Pop-Tart power rankings. Trust me, The Stacks Pack is having a good time. If this sounds like you, or if you just want to throw a little money behind an independent podcast you believe in, head to patreon.com slash the stacks. And here's a special shout out to our newest members of the Stacks Pack, Joanna Espinoza and Chevy Crowley. Thank you so much for joining and thank you to the entire Stacks Pack. And now it's time for my conversation with Nicole Chung about This Boy We Made by Taylor Harris. All right, everybody, we are back. It is the Stacks Book Club Day. I am joined again by friend of the podcast, incredible author, Nicole Chung. Nicole, welcome back. Thank you, Tracy. And we're going to talk today about This Boy We Made, a memoir of motherhood, genetics, and facing the unknown by Taylor Harris. So I'm so bad at remembering to do this, but I've been really good this year so far. Let me tell you all what the book is about before Nicole and I start talking. Um, And I should also say there will be some spoilers in today's episode. So if you haven't read the book and you don't want to know what's coming, pause this, read the book, and come back. Um, But basically, this is a story of Taylor Harris. She is a Black mother living in Virginia. She has a daughter and a son who's about 22 months or so when he has some sort of like extreme health scare. And the book follows her trying to figure out what's going on with his health and is also sort of a fluid memoir that goes back to her childhood, deals with her anxiety, deals with her marriage, her faith, her family. So it's one of those memoirs where it's like about a thing, but she's really covering like a lot of topics. Um, So yeah, that's the book in a nutshell. We always start here, Nicole. What did you think of the book sort of generally? Um, I should say that uh, right off the bat that I'm not exactly impartial. I've been a (laughs) fan of Taylor Harris's for a long time. Um, And I just feel in the interest of transparency for your listeners, I'll share that Taylor and I are like real life friends. And I've also edited and published her work. Um, But we met many years ago at a writing conference before either of us had published much of anything. Mm. Um, I was a fan of her McSweeney's column, though. I was reading that at the time. It was called Big Mom on Campus. Um, And it was about her experience, like living in the UVA dorms with her husband when he was a professor there, like moving back to her alma mater with with young children. Um, And I had young children myself at that point around a little older than hers, but around the same age. So 
I was just really drawn in by like this very voicey, funny mm. uh, column written really at the intersection of like um, like race and parenting in ways I wasn't seeing in a lot of other mainstream parenting columns. Anyway, all that to say, I've I've known and really loved Taylor's work for a long time. And I really loved this book. And not just because I edited some columns that like eventually were adapted into part of the book. But um, I think what I love the most about her writing is just like the heart and the humor mm. and the way you'll think you know where a sentence or a story is going. And then she'll drop in something that's really so surprising, sometimes mm. funny, sometimes not funny. But like <laughs> it's, it's the fact that I've been reading her for so long and I'm still continually surprised by where she goes. I really appreciate that. So. Yeah, I mean, I really do. I really do like this book. And I knew when you picked it out of the list I sent you, I was like, oh, man, like, I cannot be impartial about this book. But I hope people still listen to my opinions. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. I mean, when when you sent it over, I said back, I was like, as long as she's okay, if there's criticism, and you were like, yeah, I'm fine. So and I have a little criticism of this book. But here's I'm going to start here. Overall, I liked this book. Like I enjoyed my time with it. I read it pretty quickly. There are things in this book that I did not care for, which we'll get to. But overall, I really liked it. And I think my favorite thing about the book was the beginning. I thought she drew the audience in to what was going on and like her frame of mind trying to figure out what was going on. It was it felt like a thriller. I think the first note I took was like, this is so suspenseful. This is a thriller. And I was so interested to see where it was going to go, if she could keep that up, when we were going to find out what was going on, if it was going to shift at all. And I think it definitely shifts more into like a traditional memoir about maybe a third of the way in, maybe 25% in. Um, and I don't know if I could have sustained that level of like stress panic as a young parent. You know, I'm a parent to three and a half year old. So I'm sitting there being like, this is my nightmare. This is my nightmare. This is my nightmare. And I don't know if I could have done that fully. Um, but I think where the book lost me a little bit was a lot of the faith elements around religion. I didn't feel like they were interrogated enough for me to understand her relationship to religion and also the importance for her of the kind of like head to headness of faith and science. And she gets to it a little bit throughout, but that part was really challenging for me. And I think that kind of took me out of the story. So I think that's generally my like overall overarching opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to talk, I want to ask you a few questions about memoir before we really dig into the book, because you're a memoirist whose work that I love. And I wanted, I've heard memoirists talk about memory work. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? What does that look like? Obviously, you can probably only speak to your own experience, but you've edited many people who write personal stuff. So I'm, I'm curious if you have insight on that. I think so. I mean, I'll say too that, um, just I wanted to real quickly, if I could address something yeah. you said about the like thriller-esque feeling and the way you're kind of dropped into the medical mystery part of the book. Um, I did find that like opening really effective too. And I'll say as someone whose first book followed, I mean, it's such a different topic for for your readers who don't know, like it's about like my search for my birth family, but like as someone who's written a kind of memoir as mystery almost, and then also had the structure change, you know, kind of based on what I found. And like, I think all you can ever know also becomes a more traditional memoir about halfway through. Um, I hadn't really thought about that similarity until you mentioned, but it's something I really enjoy yeah. uh, in the form. And I'll also say I like when it shifts to something that is more traditional memoir. And by that, I don't mean dull. I mean something more interrogative, something that's yeah. more internal and yet like hopefully has something reaching out to readers because it is hard, I think, to sustain that. Like it keeps you turning pages for a while, that thriller mystery aspect. But at some point, like I read memoir, like I read that genre to get for memoir. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I, don't, I just appreciated what you said about that. Um, yeah. But yeah, your question about memoir and memory work, it's so different for everybody. I, I'm sure every memoir writer has their own approach to it. And I'll say mine changed a lot between book one and book two. Writing book two in general was like a much more physical experience for me. Like I was more aware of like my brain and my body is integrated in that process as opposed to like just being a brain who writes, kind of dragging my body along with me. Mm. I was much more, I was doing a lot more memory work where I was trying to remember how certain events and conversations felt in my own body. And mm-hmm. for me, that was how I summoned those memories and how I could have made them real. This is with a living remedy. 
Um, I'll say from working with a lot of different writers, I know not everybody has that same approach. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, that is like what memory work now really involves. Like a lot of it is like trying to embody a moment again and not just tell you I felt this way or even I feel this way, present tense writing about it. But like, let me bring you in and like try to explain, give you like the sensation mm-hmm. of this moment for me. Um, so I don't know. And then in terms of like process, um, I think a lot of writers have different approaches, but like you can look at photos, of course, um, if if your sources are like living and you have a right. good relationship, you can talk with them. Uh, I really enjoyed like checking my memory, like against my mother's mm. when I was writing, working on different parts of both books. So some of it, too, I think is reported and we maybe don't talk about that enough, mm-hmm. um, but you're not always doing that memory work alone. You know, you're trying to get other perspectives. And even with The Living Remedy, by the time I finished it, my parents weren't here. I mean, I was checking things with my husband, with my sister, with Mm -hmm. friends who kind of lived through that with me. Um, And that was like really important, too. So I think one thing to remember is you may feel like you're alone writing a memoir. And at times it's very solitary work. But, you know, you're not necessarily as alone as you think. And there's people that you can, if they're willing and if you're willing, like they can be part of that process. Yeah. Something that just I'm thinking about as you're saying that, like having other people being part of the process is in this book, in this boy we made, you know, I think a lot about likability for authors because I think that it gets thrown around in a way that's really like dismissive, especially of women authors, especially of authors of color. Like I really hate it and it happens all the time. But a thing that I was thinking as I was reading this book was like, gosh, I really like Taylor. I really like Taylor. Like, she seems like someone I like. However, as I'm reading the book, I'm also having these things where I'm like, this isn't like, you're annoying me. Like, I don't like this. I don't like this part of you. Or I don't like this. And it was really interesting to think about how much I liked her, but also how much she was pissing me off a little bit, like like choices that she would make or, or the ways she would describe things. And I wonder if like this desire to like something or to agree with something in memoir is different than like in a fictional piece where where we feel like we want to like the main character because a lot of memoirs I read I don't like the person at all I'm like okay I'm interested in your story but like like educated I don't like Tara Westover I'm not interested in her as a person but I read I didn't like that book either but you know I read the story because I wanted the story and in this case I think I kept reading because I liked Taylor and I was rooting for her so I'm wondering what you think about like likability in memoir Oh, that is such a loaded question. It um, is. I, when you when you started talking about this, I was like, oh man, like I don't even know what likability means right. um, in literature. And I think it's especially tough with memoir because yeah. I think people forget too, you're never getting the whole person. You're obviously never getting the whole person when it comes to other characters in the book. Right. Like a memoir writer, and we've talked about this, they can only give you as fair as they try to be, as like thoughtful and nuanced and compassionate as we try to be, we can only really give you how we knew a person. Mm-hmm. If, if someone else were to write about like my mother, it would be a completely different book than my second mm-hmm. book, right? So, I mean, I think about that, but I think about too, just like when you're rendering yourself on the page, like the narrator, the I in memoir, the great challenge is that you're trying to do it in a way. And I don't think I think about likability so much. Maybe I should think about it more. I don't know um, if that's the right <laughs> word, but you know, like, yeah. Yeah, but you're trying to render the eye, if not in a likable way, at least in a way that is so honest and real mm-hmm. that the reader kind of stands in with you. Like you're asking them to join you in this, like, they almost go through it with you, right? Right. They're like almost taking your perspective, that eye perspective on your life. Um, I don't think you necessarily have to be likable for a reader to want to follow you through a story, yeah. right? Like you're saying you read Educated and like yeah. kept with it despite not really liking the narrator that much. I think sometimes though it's really difficult if there's a difference between not liking a narrator and not feeling they're like they're being real with you. And like that. maybe that's the key. You cannot like the narrator, the author, character that they've constructed. Recognizing, I think it's important to recognize no one is the I character they create in the memoir. Right. Like, I mean, I tried to be as honest as I could be. And of course I am different and just not entirely, right? Like you can't fully render yourself either. 
but you, I think readers, I trust readers generally. I think they know if I'm not being real with them. And like, part of my job is to give them the respect of recognizing that, recognizing mm-hmm. they need something real to hold on to. And it starts with the narrator. It starts with the author. I think that's ultimately the most important thing. Do you think that memoirists need to be reliable narrators? I'm just trying, I'm, I'm just thinking about like a lot of the phrases we throw around with fiction, like likable characters or like relatable or, reli- or unreliable narrator. And I'm just thinking about like in memoir, will we go with someone if we think that they're full of shit or they're lying to us a little bit? Personally, as a reader, I can't really do that. Yeah. Um, and I, I, it doesn't bother me at all with fiction. You know, no, it's I love it in fiction. To- right, love right. It. <laughs> I love a good unreliable narrator. Yes. Um, I think I think it's a lot harder for me in memoir and why it seems sort of obvious, but it's because I'm trusting them to tell me a true story. Mm-hmm. You know, recognizing, of course, it's one perspective. It's like their truth. It's not the whole truth, but I'm still expecting a truth. Yeah. Um, and if I feel like I'm, you know, just kind of being strung along or they're not being real or they're just not letting me close enough. Yeah. Um, not that I need to know everything about them. That's not like my right as a reader, but Again, I think I you can tell as a reader when an author is just not keeping it real with you. Yeah. And that makes it really hard to follow, especially for, for memoir. And I think I'm thinking about some of the unreliable narrators in memoir, like I like Prince Harry Spare. Mm-hmm. I I found his I found his version of events to at least make me be like, hmm, what are we doing here? What are what are you trying what are you getting at? And I think that maybe with celebrity memoir, it works better or it it, it is I'll stick with it because I'm like I have some frame of reference for you. Whereas like if the author is like a career writer that I've never met or never heard of and I'm just reading the book because of the premise, it's a lot harder for me if I feel like I can't trust you. Like Matthew Perry's memoir people read and loved and hated and loved to hate because he was lying to them a little bit, but like they knew it. And so you're kind of in on it. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I wasn't planning on talking about this at all, but it just kind of popped into my head. Um, And I, and I did, I find Taylor to be a, a mostly likable and relatable and reliable narrator. Um, I think that like something that she was able to do, like I mentioned, was I I wanted to go on the journey with her because I was rooting for her and for Tofs, her, her son, of course. Um, but also I felt like some sort of maybe like familiarity with her. Like she reminded me of what I imagine if I had a sister, that's who she would be. Um, Like, you know, like where it's like, I'm annoyed by you, but I also very much love you and want only good things. So I don't know. I guess we should kind of talk about the book a little bit. I want to talk about this parenting and anxiety because that is such a central theme. Both Taylor's anxiety previous to having children and everything going on with her son, but then also the parenting and anxiety connection. And you're a parent um, to middle schoolish children, yeah. Um, and you've written about a little bit about your daughters, and I know one of your one of your children you've written about had some health or, or some 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 sort of you know needed a little extra care in places. And I'm wondering like. Did her parenting anxiety mirror what you felt as you were dealing with those kind of things? Like, did you feel seen as a parent just like generally? I mean, when my kid gets a fever, I am having basically like running down the list of malaria, (laughs) meningitis. Yeah, it's interesting. I've been reading Taylor for so long that um, when I, I mean... I don't necessarily see myself in her writing, which does not bother me. I mean, that's not necessarily what I need to read all the mm. time. Um, but like, I am a parent and I'm also an anxious person. Yeah. But I've same. been reading her for so long that like my reading her at, like far precedes my realization of how anxious I am. Um, <laughs> I, I was really only diagnosed like during the pandemic mm. and uh, while my mother was dying. And I remember just looking at my therapist, sorry, this is very personal, but I remember looking at my therapist being like, well, like, of course I'm anxious. Like, did you just hear what's going on in my life? (laughs) Um, She's like, no, no. But like, apart from the pandemic and the stress and your mother dying, like from everything that you've already shared with me, I know this is like not new. And I was like, oh, huh. And I really felt like that was such a sobering and humbling moment for me. Like I make my living interrogating Hmm. My life, my experiences. Mm-hmm. It's not that I felt denial. It's not that I thought she was wrong, but I was just like, A, like, duh. And B, like, 
oh, like, it's weird that I never really thought about putting a label to that. But like, I thought I was always just a worrier or I was just watchful or, or whatever. Um, so anyway, all that to say, like, I, I mean, I read, I've read so much of Taylor's work that happened that I read before, Mm -hmm. you know, realizing that. And like, since then, like coming back, I reread this book just this week, actually, like to prepare for this conversation. And, um, I don't know, like those parts, they always really struck me just because I think she writes really honestly and beautifully, um, about parenting and anxiety. Yeah. And, and, and I, I actually felt like, um, the parts I related to a lot were, um, she writes about how like faith is and is not like a comfort Mm -hmm. or, or like a help for that anxiety. Like the way those two things, I guess, coexist and then are kind of mirrored in her search for truth about what's going on with her son. Um, I am not a person of the same type of faith as Taylor and I have never particularly found it comforting when I'm worried, but like I was (laughs) raised, I was raised in a really devout household. And I remember being told like essentially a, the Catholic version of like, let go and let God. And that never felt like enough or comforting for me. So it was kind of incredible to me. It's just interesting reading about someone I actually like, I really like care about and respect her writing. And also like, we've had similar experiences, like they overlap in some places, but our, our reaction and like our take on it is so different. Um, I actually find that really interesting just because like two roads and then divergence. But anyway, I, I just appreciate like really good, honest writing about anxiety Yeah, and how unexplainable it really is to other people because, yeah. And it manifests like differently in everyone. I too am an anxious person. I didn't even, I'd never even heard the word anxiety until I was, I think in college or, or late, like into college. And one of my friends was like diagnosed with it. And I was like, what does that even mean? And as he was describing it, I was like, "Uh oh, (laughs) I feel seen. (laughs) I think I always thought it would like take a certain form or look a certain way. Like my anxiety is different. It's very real, but it's very different from like, for instance, what Taylor writes about in this book. Yeah. And so like, I mean, like reading this before I had that diagnosis, I like didn't particularly see myself. I'm like, interesting. You know, it's because it's because, of course, it's different for everybody. Right, right, right. And then when you reread it this time, did it did it resonate with you differently? It definitely did. Um, I mean, I'm not going to be like sites like specific no, passages. Okay. Me but, like, just, <laughs> no, but like, just generally. Yes. I mean, I've always found her writing about anxiety really moving. That's um, so even, specific. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It is like the laser specificity of yes. it. And the fact that it's not like mine or yours, mm-hmm. that actually makes me feel like those are very universal sections of the book. Right? Yeah. It's because she's being so specific about her own experience. Yeah. Um, like general generalized writing about anxiety as a phenomenon, as a diagnosis. Um, I'm glad it exists, but it doesn't touch me in the way writing like this does. Yeah. Like that's what makes it feel real is her specificity. Yeah. I think like, I, I'm always really, people can't see this because it's a podcast, but I'm always a person who like explains books by like how they make me feel. And I feel like this book, I'm like kind of like shaking my arms up and down, like I'm shaking a soda or something because of the way that the book starts with all of that, like stress. And then it kind of goes into her anxiety. When I think about this book, I have that feeling of like, uh, I need to take a deep breath. And I feel like that's really like, a huge compliment to her that she was able to capture that in her writing because I think so many people who write about anxiety write about it in a way that feels detached from what it feels like. Mm. And I feel like she was able to write about it in a way that maybe it's not the way that mine manifests or yours or anyone else's, but it gave a feeling to me. Like I could feel her. And I think like for me, that's why the parenting and parenting anxiety and anxiety parts of this book were by far my favorite because I felt like it was so specific that I could be like, I don't do that, but I understand what you're getting at. Like where she talks about the part where she's like, who's at fault here? Is it my fault for doing this? Is it my fault for doing that? Mm-hmm. And like that part of parenting and like, cause that made me think, okay, who's at fault? You can play that game in the beginning, but then at a certain point it's like, does it even matter whose fault it is? Like you're still here. Mm-hmm. Like you're here now. Right. And like, I don't know. I just feel like the way that she was able to write about the anxiety and the parenting opened up so much for me 
and like let me in. I felt like I was really let in. And it's interesting that you compare that to the faith part because for me, the faith part felt much more closed off. Like I, and I, and I, maybe cause that's personal in a different way. And I wasn't raised Christian and, you know, I wasn't really raised religious, but my family's Jewish. So culturally there were, you know, things, and I guess anxiety and Judaism sort of go together. (laughs) I feel like from what I've learned. um, But I feel like with the faith stuff for me, I didn't, she talks about how the faith was sort of like, could be calming for her in the anxiety, but I didn't feel that reading her story. Like, And I don't know what it was about the faith stuff for me exactly. And I have talked to people in the Stacks Pack, like in our book, virtual book club stuff, like online. And a lot of people were thrown off by the faith stuff. And, you know, my first instinct was like, maybe because it's not in the subtitle and it's such a big part of the book, it's sort of like a surprise and an unexpected one that maybe like it should be in there. But I think for me, as I've thought about it more and more, Where I struggled with the faith stuff was this assumption that the reader would know what she was talking about in a way that she doesn't do with a lot of the other parts of the book. She really walks us through the medical stuff. She walks us through those appointments with the teachers and educate the IEPs. She walks us through her anxiety. But with the Christianity, she's like, yeah, I'm very Christian. So we did a 40 day fast. And I'm like, okay, can I have more, please? <laughs> like, I just think for me, as the more I interrogate the, the faith stuff, I wish she had interrogated that part more because it seems so central to who she is and how she makes decisions and how she navigates faith. I, I, towards the end, there's a line where she's like, you know, I was fasting about what to do for her BRCA diagnosis. And she said, I was fasting. And a lot of people would think that fasting for a medical thing would put science and faith at odds. But for me, like it brought them together. And in that moment, I was like, oh, this is really helpful. I wish there had been more of that. So I don't know. That was a lot about the faith stuff. But I'm curious, like, did as someone who was raised Christian, but differently, like, did did the faith stuff work for you? Did it feel connected to everything else? It's interesting. I think it's one of those things where I'm trying to like picture, of course, I'm not impartial, but like thinking about when I run into things in other books where it's not my experience and or it's not all in the text. And I feel like I just didn't like necessarily walk away understanding all of it. I tend to like roll with that as a reader pretty well. It's just me. Um, I think I'm like very conscious of all the different types of experiences other people have that I don't, including different faith traditions. And that's not to say you're not just like, I don't know that I was looking for that. And I also like, I, I wondered, and I've never asked Taylor this, but I'm not sure. I, um, I know from her other writing and just from knowing her as a person, how important her faith is to her. So for me, that was not a surprise. I'm also used to, like, I feel like you could almost make that criticism about there's this chapter in a living remedy. I'm sorry to talk about my own book, but like, I wrote about my parents' faith and their church community. And I was like kind of uncomfortable when I realized I had to do that. Mm -hmm. I felt it was really necessary to the story, but it's not my tradition. I didn't know what readers would need to understand. I was like, I can't explain this whole religion in this book. And also like, I'm not the person who should be doing that. I don't know. Like all that to say, I think, I think it bothers me less because I'm used to living with religion that I don't understand. Mm. Um, like perhaps more used to it than most people but it's also I think because I like know and have edited other works of Taylor's that kind of go into it a bit more right um it's just so hard in a memoir like even if and I don't know because I haven't asked her I don't know if she wanted to include more or less right of the faith stuff and so getting the balance was like a challenge I know there were so many things that like I wanted to put in like book one or book two that kind of just didn't fit. Mm-hmm. And I have like been left wondering, Oh, does that mean like readers will be lost with this part or this part just because I couldn't figure out a way to either explain or make everything fit. Yeah. Um, so all this to say, I think I'm just aware of the tension in the project and how it's very hard to know and to figure out like what the like right balance is when you're writing about something that's kind of fraught in the way faith is. Um, yeah that not everybody will be familiar with. But every time I kind of encountered something like that in Taylor's book, I think I was like, okay, like I don't quite understand this. And then I decided to be fine with it. I don't know if that 
obviously that that doesn't work for everybody and that's yeah. okay it didn't work for you but that was sort of how i i read it i didn't expect to um to understand all those things um just because my my faith tradition is so different yeah i mean i i personally really like to read about people's faith experiences like i like one of my favorite books so far this year um or one of my favorite memoirs aside from yours actually is Hijab Butch Blues by Lamia H, mm. which is all about their experience uh, being a queer, non-binary Muslim person and immigrant and all of these things. And the book is like framed through religion. And so for me, I don't know. I think it's not necessarily the religious aspects of it. I think it's like the like I I I I think I just wanted her to dig into that part of herself a little more in the way that she's able to dig into like the anxiety or or even some of like the race stuff in the book that she digs into. Mm-hmm. Um and so I think it left me I think that's like why when it cuz like the way the book is structured where it's like so flowy and you're here in one moment and you're there in another moment which I I liked for the most part. And it worked for me, except for when we would flow from one thing into faith and back out. And I would be like, wait, why? You know, like it, it was like, I can't even explain it. It's just like a little bit like where you like tap the brakes before you break, where you're just like a little jarring. You're like, wait, what's happening? It didn't totally take me out of the book, but it was a thing that every time it came up, I was like, oh, we're here again. Like, where's this going kind of thing? Like, like with Tope's baptism, like that, that recurring theme that keep, kept coming up. I was like, okay, where is this going? Like, why do we keep hearing about this? Like, what does this mean? And I just never felt like I fully got it in the ways that like, I felt very clear about her thoughts and feelings and emotions when we talked about the schools and mm-hmm. like all of her education experiences with like Tove schools. Um, we have to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Okay. We're back. Okay. I want to talk about some of the medicine stuff because again, your book deals with 
medicine, your second book, A Living Remedy, and and the experience of like being dealing with the healthcare system. I think I could have done with more of this stuff in this story. Like I thought this part was really well done. The way that she, again, like the thrillery part in the beginning, like the doctor who's like, you know what? Don't leave. Actually come back. Let's do the blood work. And like the moment where it's like, this is a black woman with a black child and a black doctor. And this doctor decides like not to send her home and how huge that moment was versus like as things unfold. And Taylor's very complimentary of, I think all of her doctors and all of the medical care if I'm remembering, I don't think she has like, I I think she has a hard time finding answers. Right. But does she have like bad experiences? I can't remember like specific instances from the book. I mean, there might've at some point been like a hurried person. Yeah. But but no, most overall it's mostly like pretty good care. Right. Um, I don't know. I don't have really like a question about it, but I'm curious, like what, what you sort of felt about about the way like medicine is covered throughout this book? Um, I really liked those parts a lot. And I also recognize as somebody who's re- written about the healthcare system, but does not consider myself by any means like an expert. I can understand like, again, where it's sort of hard to figure out like the balance that works for yeah. you, the writer, first mm-hmm. of all, and your family and their privacy. Right. And then also like what, what is going to be there for readers? What scaffolding, what details do they need? I think that tension in like how much to reveal and your concerns about privacy is something that like every, every memoirist has to think about a lot. And I'm sure she did. I really do like those sections that again, that's where the mystery comes from. I feel like that's what keeps you turning pages in this book. And at the same time, like, and this is like where we get a little bit into spoiler territory. I was not bothered by the lack of like a neat, tidy answer you know, oh, whereas, I liked it. I right, really liked too. it. Well, whereas if like we were talking about just a medical thriller, like if a doctor were writing this about Tosa's case, you would expect right. if they're bothering to write this down, they're going to tell us about this moment of realization. Like there will be a revelation. There will be an explanation. And like because it's memoir and because it's real life, <laughs> like we don't get that it does not bother me. Um, and like you, I really liked that. I, I, I think liked- that's what makes this book compelling. Yes. Um, but I, I just, I bring that up because I think it goes to show it's hard because on one hand, it is a little bit medical thriller, yeah. medical mystery. And on the other hand, it doesn't have the ending you would expect if that's why you're here. Um, so I, I don't know. I really just appreciate how difficult that task was, especially for yeah. somebody without a background, like yeah. in medicine. And I, I thought the way she wrote it, it's hard to write about the hardest thing in your life in a way yeah. that is also for readers. That's and entertainment. It's also suspenseful, yes. Yeah. Like it's like your your families and your trauma. And it's also supposed to be entertaining for people. I mean, that's a hell of a thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I also think that question and eventual like answer is is what gives the book so much of its structure. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I don't know. That it did work for me. I think it's just there was so much to excavate in this book between like healthcare and the medical mystery. And as you mentioned, the education sections, which were really compelling and which I completely relate to as the yeah. parent of an autistic child with an IEP. Right. Um, and then the the faith stuff, I think it might just be a, a thing, too, of like there's so much to excavate and also yeah. explain to readers who are not necessarily familiar. But, yeah, I thought the medical the big question as like the driving question of this book, I thought that was quite effective. I agree. I thought it was. And I think like, I, you know, I've read a few books. I've read many medical related memoirs, like not from the doctor's point of view. And I think a lot of the times when it's the parent writing about it, we know the ending, like the child dies, or we know that this is a parent dealing with a child with X, Y, Z, and the memoir is presented in that way. It's like, okay, this is my memoir about when my child was diagnosed with lymphoma or whatever. I don't know. Um, And in this case, we don't know where we're going. And even when we get there, it's like, okay, wait, what? Like, it's like, so, and that's like the real life of it, which is what I appreciated is like, yeah, this, there's not really a good answer here. Like there, we think we know, we think it's a seizure thing, actually, you know, like (laughs) thanks for testing his blood all the time, but I guess the glucose thing, not so much like that whole part of it also feels so like real life for anyone who's ever been sick or had illness. Even if you have a true diagnosis of like, 
diabetes. It doesn't always manifest. Like I think, did you read um, The People's Hospital by uh, Ricardo Nuila? It's on my list, partly because we were on a panel together at the LA Times Book Fest. Um, I really want to read it. It's good. The conversation that like his parts of the panel were so excellent. Um, So it's definitely on my TBR, but I haven't read it yet. Yeah, well, it's really good. I just finished it. And he talks about, I mean, he's a doctor, but he talks about one of his patients who has diabetes who comes in and they the per, this person has like had it for so long and it has like been so deteriorative that his medical handbook doesn't even have the symptoms because they they don't take into account that like there are healthcare systems where people can't get healthcare and that something like diabetes could be left untreated for so long. And I guess my point, oh, my point in that is that even when you have something that is easily diagnosed or quickly diagnosed, there are symptoms and things that don't match. And in this case, it's like they've given her a diagnosis by the end, but it's like so unsatisfying. I'm assuming for her as it is for us, the reader, and for probably Toves too of like, sure, I have this, but like, what the fuck was all that other stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. I think like the real... You, I think it's true, and I, but I also think it's effective that you think you're reading a book that might answer a specific question, yeah, and then, and then it learn. doesn't, <laughs> right? But like, I also I don't I don't necessarily feel like I, the feeling I get from the end is not like dissatisfaction. That no, and I I have to give her a lot of credit too for writing that writing that sort of I don't know living in the in between, living yeah. in the unknown. I mean, actually, that's what I find most powerful about this book is yeah. that um, it is a hard thing, especially for an anxious person. And especially for a parent with a sick kid, like it is so hard to just dwell in the unknown and know you may never know more. Yeah. Some of the moments I related to most in the book, apart from like the IEP stuff, um, I don't know, there was this moment in general, our anxiety is different. And so like your, you know, your first question about, did I feel seen by that? Like not necessarily, but I still related, but there's this one part where I really did. And it's like, I forget how she describes it. She has like a beautiful, like lyrical style of writing, but like, it was something like, it was the way she said, I think she was calling for her husband, uh, Paul, but in this way, like it was the way she described her tone, like the tone that means like somebody, anybody help. It's when Tofs is in the bed with her. Right. So like that reminded me of this moment. The first time I thought anything could be wrong with one of my kids and like my husband informed me, I had like a whole different facial expression that he'd never mm. seen on my face before. And it basically, it was just this sort of like someone needs to help us, like someone needs to help them and and me. This is like too much. And it was like a look he'd never seen on my face before. He's seen it many times since, right. you know, it's that my kid needs help. Who's going to help us? Who's going to help? Just like, it just like struck me like to the core. I don't know a parent who doesn't who can't relate to that regardless of whether or not they're anxious. Right. Uh, I don't know a parent who hasn't had that feeling at some point or another, but this realization, you develop new tones of voice, you develop new facial expressions. There's like a whole new library of like things you worry about and ways you express that and try to get answers. And then like in this book, she does all that and she doesn't end up with like an answer like she thought she would get. And you realize for me, like I realized the question that this book is really about is like how, who is her son? Mm. And like one of the more powerful points in the book for me is when she says she was driven by this need to like see him and understand him and know him because they're your child. You don't, no one could love them more, but sometimes you do feel like you don't understand. And I also Mm. don't know, I don't know any parent who can't relate to that feeling either, whether or not they have a disabled child. Um, just like there, them, there being some part of your child that you want to be able to understand and reach and love that part too, but yeah. it's just out of reach. That is like so powerful to me and so relatable. And that to me is why the sort of ending where we don't have neat answers is okay. Because I feel like in the end, she sees him, she understands yeah. him and she loves him. And she realizes that's the most important thing. Yeah. I mean, I think that the ending is the exact right ending for this book. Like I, cause it's their, it's her story. It's their story. And I think like as, as a reader and like as a piece of entertainment, right? Like as a book, 
I think it's also the right ending because it's true to the world that probably most people who are reading the book live in, right? People in America who have some relationship to the healthcare system, whether they have fantastic health coverage or none, um, that, that there is always this feeling of like, this is unsatisfying, even if you get the exact answer pinpointed. And, you know, to add on top of that, in her case, the part that I, I mean, this part really struck me was when they did all the genetic testing and then she finds out she has BRCA or BRCA, or I, I don't know, some people say BRCA, some people say BRCA. Anyways, that she finds that out. And in that moment, I was like, holy shit, imagine being so wrapped up in this other thing. And you're like obsessed with what's going on with your child. And you're like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Take my, take my blood, like do my test. And then all of a sudden you get the phone call with the person with the voice. That's like, so Taylor, um, we got your results back and we just want to talk like that conversation. On the day she found out she was pregnant with yes. her child. Oh, right. oh, this right. is also why I, I mean, I'm sorry, this is going to sound, I don't mean it to sound callous, but I feel like this is one more reason you read memoir. Like, yeah. because real life is so much weirder than fiction. Yes. If you're reading this in a novel, you would You'd be, be like, like, no fucking Come way. on, lady. Like, yeah. this is too, too much me on one day. This is like how, <laughs> like, I heard from my birth father the first time as I was going into labor with mm-hmm. my older daughter. If this were like, I've said this before, but like, if this were a novel, you'd be like, I'm sorry, but that's too much. Too, it's on, too the on the nose. Yeah. But like, because it's life, you're like, holy shit. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I actually really, that that part of the book, it's such a hard thing too to like go from writing about this one medical journey to like, then it, it's really her story. It becomes but it, two. But it feels so right. Like, mm-hmm. and in a way, like, because you are writing such intimate, like things about your child, to me, like, from a craft standpoint, again, not to sound callous, I think that is one of the things that makes the book work is the fact that it becomes a dual journey. They're on it together, separate yeah. journeys, but it's her story too. I think that's actually essential. In a way, I find it a lot more like moving and relatable than if it were, if it had remained just his story. It doesn't feel like his story at all, actually. Right. It right. feels like her story and her story involves him, which I respect a lot because I think so many people overshare about other people's lives and make their memoirs about other people. And she does not do that, especially when it comes to kids. Because it's like, he can't really consent to you should, you know, like, I think right. she does a great job of being like, this is my experience and my life story. And there is this huge component that I would like to focus on, which is my child. Right. She never says like, this is what it means to him, or this is what it will mean someday. That's yeah. the, there's this whole brand of like parenting writing about kids, often disabled kids that mm. I find honestly repugnant morally. Um, and like that, that is almost always at the heart of it. Um, is that they're trying to define this experience. Like for their kid. Well, and this is something I think I'm sensitive to just as an adoptee because so many adoptive parents do this in writing about us. Mm. Um, I'm not saying it's the same, but I'm saying like I notice that and I always notice it as an editor too. Um, It's just kind of like one of my big red flags. And and sorry, just to clarify, are you saying that like what what you're noticing is that the parent is trying to like define the situation for the child and to say like this is what this means to Nicole? Yeah, but I would say too, like, it's not necessarily a parent and child thing. I think I like you see that most commonly. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is this way that like disabled children are often kind of infantilized and right. like written about without their consent. Um, and it's often parents and caregivers. But I mean, I would see it too, with just like essays that could be very beautifully written, but like, we're very much fundamentally about someone else's journey. I see um, someone else's story. And like, that was not really interrogated enough, or like the piece was not enough about the author and their Mm -hmm. experience of that. It was, it was too much about not only someone else's experience, but defining like what that meant to them. Um, It was always just one of those things that I noticed as an editor. Yeah. I I do have a question for you about like, there, there was one moment in the book where she is telling, sharing with us sort of, I guess like maybe her fears for TOEFs and she talks about like perhaps, you know, he's autistic and she kind of like has this moment and it's something that I, I, what the note I took is like, is this dabbling in ableism? Right. And like, for me, it's something that I think a lot about because as of now I'm healthy and my children are healthy. And I know as a parent, it's like, 
you want your kid to be the most healthy, the most smart, the most beautiful, the most generous, the most whatever, you know, like you want your kid to have no struggles, I think is what it really boils down to. It's like you want your kid to be healthy, happy, loved, be able to love all of these things. And I just, I never know how to how we should be talking about and expressing these things because I also know people who are disabled, who are happy, healthy, loved, generous, full, complete humans. But then when I think about my own kids, I know that I dabble in some of that ableism. And so I don't I don't know what you think about it, how you feel about it when it comes up in writing, if you see those kind of sentiments, if it if it does anything for you. Um I think it reminds me kind of of where I don't know. It reminds me how prevalent ableism is and yeah. how internalized it is and how just like racism uh, or misogyny, it it's not enough to know that it exists. It takes active daily work to recognize and resist it. Right. Um, and it's something I have like we've all learned. So I'll include myself in this and not to get too personal again. But like when you're the parent of a kid who has either specific like needs or challenges or just like a medical mystery, like in Taylor's mm-hmm. case, you know, you're seeing a lot of doctors and you're always encountering like this very medicalized system, of course, to try to get at the bottom of something. Uh, speaking from personal experience, though, once you get a diagnosis of something like autism, you know, which which they don't get in this book. I mean, right. um, that's not the diagnosis, clearly. But once you get that, you sort of realize how how the medical model that got you here to this place isn't necessarily going to help you that much in like moving forward, you know, Mm. because like they'll rush to reassure you of things. Like I remember, I remember the doctor who diagnosed my daughter being like, she can still get married. Like she can still go to college. Like I was thinking about that with a three-year-old, but they're so used to that being where people's minds go. People ask. Yeah. I mean, for the, for the record, like I have no idea really what her future is. I also don't know what the future of my non-autistic child is. Yeah. Um, But like there's, I don't know. I, I have had because of my own experience as a parent, like years in which to try to unlearn my own internalized ableism and challenge it when I see it. And also like recognize, like, I'm not going to know the passage that you're referring to. Like, I can't remember a specific part where she seems to be like, but I understand being scared of that diagnosis because I was scared right up until I got it. And then I understand that I have spent years working and like challenging myself and realizing that like my daughter is happy, loved, healthy, like a wonderful kid and she's autistic right. um, and like learning what that means. I think it still hurts to encounter it in the world. We encounter ableism all the time. Um, like I've encountered it in the education system like Taylor did. And in, I've encountered it from people I consider friends and that's hard because you don't always want to be the one who's educating either. Right, right. But so much of it for me is about I think I don't want to say like radical acceptance because I'm shit at accepting things I can't change. (laughs) But like I truly see and love and accept my child just as she is. And like, I don't know, I'm I like wish I could make the world into a world where that would be the case with everybody she met. I can tell you when I worry about like the future and like what could happen to my kids, it's not because of anything about them. And in my younger world, it's because of the world they live in. And like every I'm sure you can relate to this as a parent, like a black parent. I also like think about it from like a a racial standpoint as well. Like there's so much you want to be able to do to remake the world for your kids before they get there. But like, I mean, there's a limit to what you can do individually. So I feel like I've drifted from your question. But no, I think you're still on there. (laughs) When I read those sections of this book or other books, I just often, unless it's like wildly ableist and I can tell the person has not interrogated or like worked on that at all. Like, I think to the degree that it comes into this book, you see her struggle with it. Yeah, that's how I feel, too. Like you see it like I see it. And I think like for me, I recognized it in myself, Mm -hmm. you know, like I'm not going to sit here and pretend like I'm this perfect, enlightened person. And like I recognize that and I recognize it as this fear of like I said before, of like not wanting your child to have to have struggles, even though of course we know our kids will struggle. It's but like, we, I just, yeah. we, I want the least possible. Like exactly. I would love for you to be a child of a billionaire actually, and just have someone drive you around every day. I like, mean, who wouldn't want to put your kid on an express train if you can get them on an express train? Yeah, It's exactly. the easiest route. <laughs> like, yeah. 
absolutely. I think, you know, and I think it's important to recognize it's a natural like urge that you don't want your kids to struggle and the life is life and yeah. they're never going to, ha- they were never going to have a life without struggle. And, and so that when, like, yeah, yeah. And that people who are disabled also have a life. I think that's the thing is like, we're taught that if you're disabled, you are less than. And I think for me, my feelings about like wanting my kids to be the happiest, healthiest, smartest, whatever, is just like, I want my kids to have the best possible life that they could possibly have because I'm their mom, period. And mm-hmm. I think the ableism part of it is like that I associate being disabled with something that's less than because that's what I've been taught. And so I feel like when I see it in another parent or another person, it I can see it. But when I think about it in myself, I can't see it because it, it is the water that we swim in, right? But like when she says it, I'm like, oh, that's that thing that, you know, we're not supposed to feel this way, right? Like, it's like, this, like it's, yeah, I think it's right that you notice and that it makes you a little uncomfortable. And I think she does that as well. You yeah, know, in the for book. sure. I think she does um, too. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's important to realize. I don't know. I've, like I said, it's not like I'm some perfect enlightened parent either. I mean, I've learned a lot, I will say, from like disabled and especially autistic self-advocates. Mm. Um, so I don't know, any wisdom that I have is pretty much like gleaned from other sources. Yeah. But I'm I feel really glad that like you know, my kids have reached basically adolescence now. And like I'm not wrapped up in like their academic achievement or like I don't think about of course, like I want them to be happy, but I don't know, I've I had to get to a point when they were very young of like accepting that there's so much I don't control and that like really what's most important to me. Like, I think every parent has to face that, but when you are the parent of a disabled child, you face it kind of maybe quicker than some other people and yeah. in a very different, very real way. I had to ask myself when my daughter was two and three, what if her future doesn't look the way I always thought or assumed my kid's future would look. And I had to like accept that mm. very early on. Um, in order to like, of course, love and see her and be her parent and also fight for her right. and her right to learn as much as she can, you know? So I don't know if that hadn't happened, I'd be a really different parent right now. I'm not saying like I'm superior. I'm just right. saying like a different path that, right. I have that perspective and that experience because of like my particular parenting experience. So when I read those sections in a book, like I recognize that and I only get mad if I feel like, like I said, if they're not interrogating that, like, because it is, it is our responsibility as hard as it is to do that, to be our kids like first best allies and to not just go along with the world's line about because the world's line is ableist. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like we have to see their worth and their dignity in a different way. Yeah. I, I think like you you brought up race right before during this part of the conversation. And I think like I see a similar thing in Taylor when she's talking about like the education system and a little bit about the medical system when she's talking about race as like being a black parent to a black son and like with the education, like the plans that they make. And she's like, my son isn't just another black kid. And like that same kind of like thinking and talking is similar to the ableism, right? Like that the racism is there and it's part of it and it's in her too. And like, I think like there's sections where she says something that I think she's like, she, I, I read it as she's standing up for her son. Like he's not going to be just another black boy, but even like that kind of thinking is of course racist that like he, that he, you know, like, and so I see, I see it and I'm not saying that she's racist. I'm just saying like, she does a good job of letting us see her failings or her, or her weak spots or whatever you want to call it. But when I get to see it in her, I can see it in myself a lot better. So I, I think that's probably a compliment to her. Um, and I think like for her allowing us to let her see, her, show her work kind of like, right? Like, cause also all of this happened a while ago. So it's not her today, no matter what, but just like, there's moments where I'm like, oh, that's like, don't say that. And then I'm like, right, of course, but that's, I'm only freaking out about this because it's in me too. I read those sections, a lot of them, um, again, like as a fellow parent with an autistic kid and an IEP. And um, I think, I think it's sort of like, I understood why she was worried about, like, she was worried the education system was going to put him in the, put him in that, yeah, exactly. With, with like black boys that they've left behind. Or like in the case of, um, like, she writes at one point, and this is again where the specificity I feel like helped me understand so much better. Because I can understand as the parent of a kid with an IEP, but I don't have a black child right. in the public education system. And so 
when she said there was talk about there being too many black kids with IEPs and the school system actively wanted to to have less to have fewer of them. Right. Which meant denying services, because that's really what that means. Ultimately, if you're going to have fewer of them, then you're going to be denying services to somebody. And she was like, it's not going to be my kid. Like, I, I understood like that part of it just because like, I mean, I know like a racist quota. I know like what it's like to have your kid put in a certain been in the school system for various reasons. Right. Um, so that part I was like, yeah, like again, if she were being more general about this, I might not understand yeah. like her motivations or her feelings, but because she's being so specific, like I get it. I get why and like where this fear comes from. Yeah. Yeah. And like also <laughs> talking, remember we were saying like, if this was in fiction, people would be like, no way. How about the fact that she's living in fucking Charlottesville? Like, that also is just so on the nose, given that like the Charlottesville march and riot and murders and all like that, that all happens like there as she's talking about like navigating. I was like, there's no way she's going to be like, there's no way. And then, of course, I knew it was coming, but I was like, maybe she's going to be gone still or whatever. Another thing that she does so beautifully in the book, <clears throat> and which is really hard to do because it's also emotional and scary, is talking about like, that intersection of race and Um, disability with her son even though they don't know exactly what's going on with him like when she goes into these future scenarios like having a son a child who grows up becomes a black man in this country and like you know she talks about his seizures or inability to like like necessarily always trap a conversation or understand what he's being asked or like control like all of his like physicality you know like I just like I really felt those moments like in my heart, just like mm-hmm. for fear. And like this, the heartbreaking thing is they're perfectly reasonable fears to be having, yeah. you know? And of course that's where her mind is going to go. And I just like want to, I just appreciated that given how hard I'm sure it was to like have those thoughts and like face that reality. And then also write about it again in a way that's going to reach people who don't share your experience, who yeah. don't have a kid like yours um, and, and not lose them. But I yeah. thought, it was just like really just an important and heartbreaking and very realistic like thing to be worrying about. Yeah. And I think it took a lot of bravery. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think like to sum it up, since we're pretty much out of time, like I think both of us, the stuff that was the most compelling is like when she got really specific and like really let us in to what she was thinking and feeling, even when it is less than, you know, politically correct. I don't even know if people say that anymore. <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like Bill Maher ruined that for us. Um, but I feel like to me that that's where this book is at its best is like when she is really dropped into letting us into her experiences. Um, the last thing we always talk about is just title and cover. Um, I have to say, I think this covers fucking gorgeous it is yeah I mean it just pops off my bookshelf every time I see it I'm just I mean I've I remember this book when it came out I didn't read it then but I remember being like whoa what's that about mm-hmm. um and I think the title is great this boy we made I think we can carry a lot of weight like who is the we mm-hmm. um is it society is it her her and her husband is it you know medicine is it faith is it god um the subtitle, I would have just added faith in there somewhere. I think that mm. would have helped me. Since it's already such a long subtitle, why not throw another, another floater in there? <laughs> I didn't even know what the subtitle was till you mentioned faith wasn't in there. Like, I think if you, it's not that I haven't read it, but I never pay attention to memoir subtitles. And like both of mine are just subtitled a memoir, which I prefer that. I yeah. actually prefer that because when I, there is a subtitle, then I'm like, this is what I'm getting. But if you just put a memoir, I'm like, okay, it's your life. Let's see. Um, yeah, I had to, I think, argue a little bit to get just a memoir <laughs> with like the first book. Uh, publishing loves a classification and a category. As they sure do. I agree. I think the title's gorgeous. Um, and I love how the outline of Toast like is like stars. Mm-hmm. And it reminds me of that line from the Clifton poem, like star shining clay. Um, mm. Anyway, I think it's really pretty. And I'm not sure you'd like, I'd have to ask her, but I think Taylor like, had something to do with like making a couple suggestions oh, nice. about the cover. Um, I'm not sure. Maybe the color. I'm, I don't want to say that and then be wrong. Um, but yeah, the cover is by Nicole Caputo and it's really, yeah. really gorgeous. Um, yeah. I'm sure she considered other titles. I think sometimes titles, the very last thing that you're like, yeah, settling on, but yeah, 
I think I like the title. I think the title really works. Yeah, it it does make it seem much more like Tosin's story. And then, of course, as we talked about, it's really her story. Mm -hmm. But um, it's not a criticism. It's just like that's what the title makes me think about. Right. And then like you could then be surprised that it's so much hers. Yeah, that's true. Also, Um, well, Nicole, this was so much fun. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for talking about this book with us. Thank you for suggesting it. Yeah, no, it's my pleasure. I'm really glad it worked out. And everyone else, listen to the end of this episode to find out what our June book club pick will be. All right, Nicole, thank you. Thanks, Tracy. And everyone else, we'll see you in the stacks. All right, y'all, that does it for us today. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you again to Nicole Chung for returning to the show. And a special thank you to Michael Tackins for helping to make this conversation possible. And now, exciting, our June book club announcement. We will be reading Oreo by Fran Ross. This book was released in 1974, and it's a satirical tale of a biracial Black and Jewish woman from Philadelphia. Listen next week to find out who our guest will be for our discussion on June 28th. If you love the show and want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks and join the stacks pack. Make sure you're subscribed to the stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple podcasts, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from the stacks, follow us on social media at the stacks pod on Instagram and TikTok and at the stacks pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, the This episode of the stacks was edited by Christian Duenas with production assistance from Lauren Tyree. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, and our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. 